enough. Let's, let's get into our Romans 9, 3 through 9 here. I, I don't think I said this last week when we started our exploration on this chapter, but you guys might know this already. This chapter of the New Testament is one of the most uh, notoriously difficult and scary chapters of the whole Bible. Partly because of the content, as we'll see even today some, but in the weeks to come, it challenges us a lot. It even for many of us will offend us as we continue to read through Romans 9. And that's at a personal level, it could even be at a political level, a group level, across the board. It is challenging material. But also, it's challenging for another reason, kind of a more sort of scholar level reason, and that is that we're sort of, we're sort of cruising along, going through Romans, talking about the gospel, justification by faith, through grace, and then it's like we hit Romans 9, and all of a sudden we take this detour, and we get into this long sort of excursus, 9, 10, and 11, on sort of the people of Israel and how God's working his covenant plan through them, and it just sort of seems to come out of nowhere. It, it sort of sticks out as out of place. And so many scholars have wrestled with that. Some just say, like, ah, Paul's sort of got such an imaginative mind that he's gone off on a rabbit trail for a little while, and we just need to stick with him. Uh, others think that this whole section, chapters 9 through 11, is like one big parentheses in the book, kind of a footnote, if you will. And some have even gone so far to say that it's just a section that's sort of floating around, that it might belong at another place in the scripture, but over time it kind of got moved around looking for a home. None of those are really satisfying to me, though. And in fact, reading this week, I realized that a lot of more current scholars, I think, are advocating a position that I think makes a lot more sense. And that is these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, are kind of a hinge for the whole book. And they serve a vital purpose of reassuring us as God's people that he keeps his promises. It reassures us as God's people that he keeps his word. That's actually what I went for with the title this week. Couldn't think of any clev anything clever, so I went for just straightforward, not beating around the bush. God keeps his word. That's the reassurance that these three chapters give and the one that we're starting to study today. Now, why do we need that reassurance? It comes down to one big question. And the question is this. How come God's chosen people, Israel, how come the majority of them are not followers of Jesus? Why not? What does that mean? That question is one that we, we sort of started hearing the rumblings of last week as we looked at the th first three verses of this chapter. And we, we talked about how Paul shares in verse 2 that he has this great sorrow and this unceasing anguish for what? Do you guys remember if you were here? What, what is his unceasing anguish about? Yeah, I'm asking. Talk to me. I heard a lot of murmurs and then Joy's clarion voice just rang out. It's his kinsmen, his Jewish brothers and sisters, he's burdened because they don't know Jesus. They haven't believed the gospel. It breaks his heart. In fact, he says, we read it in the very first verse that we looked at today. He says, I almost wish that I myself could be cut off from Christ, could be accursed, if only it would mean that some of them would come to know Jesus. 
that's how broken he is for them and how desperate he is to see his Jewish brothers and sisters come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But as he continues to sort of like go down that road of his anguish, it brings him to this horrifying question, this possibility, this doubt that he sort of has to slam on the brakes and deal with for a second. And that horrifying question is, wait a second, if God's chosen people that he promised himself to aren't following him, does that mean that God broke his promise? Does that mean that he doesn't keep his word? Does that mean that all the, the, the high language of covenant faithfulness, I will be your God forever, has just been thrown out the window? Can we trust him? Look at verse 4 and 5 of the text. I think I, yeah, I reprinted it up here with some, some of these words in bold and a little bit bigger. This is just, this is essentially a list of all the privileges that Israel have as the people of God. So you go through here and you see, they're Israelites. To them belong adoption, glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, which probably here refers to the temple worship, the sacrificial system, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. That is a staggering list of privileges that the Israelites have as God's chosen people. And all of it could be summed up with this phrase, this refrain that we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament. That is where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, my treasured possession. And that's not just like a, a, a one-week promise. When he says that, he's meaning forever. And so it brings us back to that question. These people that have all these privileges, that have received these promises from God, this covenant with God, if they're not following Jesus, what happened? Did God just bail on them? Did his promises turn out to be empty and hollow? And then that means something for us because... We're people that have just spent the last two years walking through Romans 1 through 8, reading about all the beautiful promises that God gives us as followers of Jesus. And now we're asking the question, was God going to keep his word to us? All these promises we read about, they're pretty good, but so were all the promises given to Israel. And if God broke those promises, how can we be confident that he'll keep his promises to us as his new covenant people? Well, fortunately, I don't have to answer that question because it's built on a false premise. And the false premise is that God broke his promise. The reality he is he has not. And he has kept his promise and is keeping his promise to Israel even today. Look at verse 6 in the text. I can't remember if I have it up here underlined. Yeah, I do. So verse 6 says this. Paul just goes straight after it. He says, but... It is not as though the word of God has failed. See, he, he didn't take 10 minutes to beat around the bush like I did. He just said it straight up. Word of God hasn't failed. God keeps his word. Here's how. Buckle up. This is going to get wild. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And I'm going to read a little further. And not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. Not all Israel is actual Israel. Is what Paul's arguing for here. So let's think about what that means. What that means is that you might have someone who is outwardly an Israelite. They're ethnically Jewish. They're from a Jewish family. They grew up with the traditions and the heritage and the culture of Judaism. They can trace their lineage. Like they've got a, like a, a family tree. They can trace it all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'd say that that person is an Israelite, but the reality is all we know about them at that point is that they are outwardly an Israelite. Just because they are outwardly an Israelite doesn't mean that they are one from the heart. God's chosen people that he made his promises to are those who were inwardly Israelites from the heart. And if someone who is just an outward Israelite were to reject Jesus, reject the gospel, and live their whole life and die without Christ, we would not then say, well, God's promises to them must have been broken or not trustworthy. No, we would say they were not truly part of the Israel of God, an Israelite from the heart. Therefore, they were not recipients of his promise. Not all Israel is actual Israel. And not all outward Israel is the Israel of the heart. Now I know this is bizarre. <laughs> and if you're anything like me, a cynic like me, I read that and it almost feels like it's sort of changing the rules of the game as you go. Moving the goalposts, if you will. And there's part of me that wants to push back on this and be like, ah, you're just sort of redefining success based on what happened, Paul. You know, God made his promise to all of Israel, but now you're saying, okay, most of them don't believe, so actually it was just a little bit of Israel he made his promise to. It feels fishy to me, or I guess you should say it smells fishy. But here's the beautiful thing about the scripture. I think Paul... The Apostle Paul who wrote this, he's anticipating a cynical person like me. And he says, you know what, Josh Lee? I know you're a skeptic. And so I'm going to take you back and show you how if you were paying close attention all along through my story of redemption, you would have seen this play out over and over and over again. And in fact, if you paid close attention, you would have seen it played out from the very beginning. The goalposts have always been in the same place. So... This is where these little bits of the quotes come in. And if you go to the next slide, I think I have these little snippet quotes. <laughs> or I thought I did. There was a, huh. So those don't have any text on the side. That's bizarre. All right, well, how about, I really like that picture. So how about go ahead and just move it to the picture, Melissa. Um, I'll explain that picture in a second. But hey, in a perfect world, this has just been crazy how the slides have been all weird today. I had a little bit of like phrases on the white part of this right here. So just imagine as I go through that, that this slide had these beautiful like calligraphy quotes in there, handwritten, I mean, just wonderful, all right? So the text that we have has quotations that Paul gives, but they're just little, little pieces of quotations. Not even full. So verse 7 said this. 
says, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then later in verse 9, we read a quote, a little snippet quote. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So those quotes don't make sense by themselves, do they? They're just little sort of slices. But what Paul's doing is he's, he's taking our attention back to the story that these quotes came from. And he's trying to remind us something about them. The story is the story of when God showed up to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and he announces to them that they are going to have a child, even in their old age. And that child, that child of promise, would be the one through whom God's blessing came through to the entire world. And so we've seen this story a few times in Romans already, but this time Paul wants us to hone in on an element of the story that we haven't so far, and it's this, that... Abraham actually had two sons. There was only one son that was given to him as the promised child. But if we read the story closely, he actually had two biological sons. Do you remember his other son's name? Ishmael. So God had promised Abraham and Sarah that in time they would have this promised child, but the years have gone on, they're waiting for the Lord and nothing's happening, and in the meantime, they're getting older. And so they decide they're gonna take matters into their own hands. And Sarah suggests to Abraham that he sleep with her handmaiden, Hagar, to be able to bring a child into the world. They're gonna help God out, so to speak. So Abraham does precisely that, and sleeps with Hagar and she has a son named Ishmael who is Abraham's son. He is the father of Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the child of promise. Isaac was who came later. And years later, God does exactly what he had said for Abraham and Sarah. He brings Isaac into their life, even in their old age. This miracle baby, the baby of promise. And it was Isaac through him, that the promises of God, God's covenant, would be transmitted through all his children after him, not Ishmael. And so we come back to these verses now, and we can sort of read in between the lines what Paul's trying to do. Verse 7, that little snippet of quote said, Through Isaac, not Ishmael, shall your offspring be named. And, and verse 9, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah, not Hagar, shall have a son. Both these boys, Ishmael and Isaac, could claim Abraham as their father. Both of them, if they took a DNA test, could say, look, Abraham is my dad. I am biologically his child. And therefore, I should have all the blessings and promises that God said should go to his children. But that's not how it happened. Only one of the boys received the blessing. And it was Isaac the child of promise. Paul uses this example to show us from the very beginning there's been this principle that not all Israel, not all children of Abraham are truly, inwardly, children of Abraham. Ishmael wasn't. Isaac was. And in fact, Next week, we'll see as we carry on with the text. And Pastor Brian's going to preach on the text next week, which is awesome. Can't wait to hear it, Brian. 
but you'll see through his preaching that there's even another example given of this same exact principle, this time with Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau. And the same thing, not all outward Israel is truly Israel from the heart. There's example after example of this all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. In fact, one of the most powerful examples that Paul could have given here were the very words of Jesus, John 8. That famous quote when Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Do you remember what happens after that? The people listening to him are Israelites and they say, make us free, how dare you? We're children of Abraham, we've been free our entire lives. And Jesus says, oh, you're not really children of Abraham. He says, you may be outwardly, but I know who your real father is. I know because you've rejected me and you've rejected my word that your real father is who? The devil. Yikes. As much as we talk about Romans 9 being really hard to swallow, swallow, the words of Jesus in John 8 might be up there too. Okay, so what am I getting at here? The point is that Paul tells us God is a promise keeper and we know this because the promises he made, he made to true Israel. And if we tried to say like, Lord, there's so many Israelites that aren't following you, that doesn't make him a covenant breaker because they might not be truly the Israel of God, the Israel from the heart. Let's do a few takeaways from this. Oh, oh, by the way, I never told you what that picture was about. You probably noticed it, though. That's the picture of Hagar and Ishmael leaving after Isaac was born. Kind of a sad scene in Genesis, but I thought it was kind of cool. I like finding, like, old, uh, what is that, neoclassical art. Any art history majors in here that can help me? I shouldn't talk about this anymore. Key, let's go to the next slide. Three takeaways. I know this, this sermon has not been super organized so far. We're really just sort of laying out this argument here. But let's finish with just one, two, three practical takeaways from this. The first one is the one that's most familiar we've talked about already. Number one, God keeps his word. That was the title of the sermon. And I want to come back to it to reiterate it. Listen, guys, the book of Romans, as we've studied for a long time now, is chock full of promises whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is chock full of promises. And I want to give you the confidence to know that the promises that we've read about are true, reliable. If God has said it, he will do it. You don't have to doubt that. And far from the, uh, the unbelief of Israel being a stumbling block or an impediment to that, actually, if we understand who the Israel from the heart truly is, it's a confirmation that God keeps his word. So take heart. All the things we've read about. Romans 3, we read that you are justified, justified by faith through God's grace, not your own good works. Thank God for that. That is a promise you can rely upon. Romans 5, we are told that our suffering produces perseverance. Our perseverance produces endurance. Our endurance produces patience. That is is a reliable promise. Romans 6, we were told that we have been set free from the bondage of slavery to sin, that we are now free in Christ. That's a promise you can rely upon. 
And Romans 8, oh man, Romans 8, there's so many of them. What will we choose? How about this one? Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise you can rely upon because God keeps his word. Takeaway number two. Ooh, your privileges in Christ, yes. You have more privileges in Christ than you probably even know. In fact, you have such privileges in Christ that it rivals those privileges that we read about that Israel had with that long list of the covenants, the glory, the law. In fact, it is a striking point to read through that list. And actually, sorry, Melissa, could you go back to it? I know I don't have it. And uh, yeah, perfect. They're Israelites. To them belong adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promise, patriarchs, and Christ. Do you realize that most of those, not all of those, but most of those can properly be said about you and Jesus? Isn't that awesome? This is the list about the privileges of Old Testament Israel, and yet the way that we've been reading through Romans, it is very clear that many of these things are now our legacy as well. Adoption. Romans 8, you've not been given the spirit of slavery and fear, but you've now been given the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Glory. I'm convinced that none of this present suffering is worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us as the sons of God. That's in Romans 8 too. It's yours. Covenants. All throughout Romans 4 and 5, we're told that the covenant of Abraham, then the covenant of Adam, then the, covenant, the new covenant of Christ now belong to us as believers. You can say the same as the patriarchs too, when we're told that Abraham is our father if we believe in faith like he did. Man, I could keep going through all of this. And like I said, not every single one of these on here is something we can claim as Gentile believers, but most of them are. And you if you're a believer in Christ, have been invited in to share in this heritage and legacy and inheritance of the people of Israel. Now, when I've taught on this before, it's come up in a few scriptures. I even did a Sunday school class on some of these matters a long time ago. I've made some people uneasy because they've thought that what I've been suggesting is that the church has now replaced Israel. And if you're wondering that or concerned about that, I hope that you would hear me now say that what I'm suggesting, and I think what the Bible's suggesting, is not a replacement, but rather it's an inclusion. It's a, it, it, to use a, a phrase that we're going to come across soon, it's an engrafting. That what's happening is that the church, you and I, many of you, you guys, I don't want to presume, but I'm a Gentile. I'm not ethnically Jewish. But in Christ, I have been invited in, included in, engrafted into the grand story of Israel. So now I can say I'm part of that story too, in Christ. That's not replacement as much as it is inclusion and making the story even grander and bolder than it was before. And I shared this up in paradise this morning. I know I'm kind of running out of time here, but I think it's worth saying. Maybe a way of looking at it that would help you, not just with this text, but as you read the whole Bible, is to realize that the Apostle Paul that wrote the letter here 
what he thought he was doing as he traveled around the Mediterranean proclaiming the gospel was not starting a new religion. Do you realize that? The Apostle Paul did not think he was creating a new world religion, a rival to Judaism. Nor did Peter or James or John when they pronounced the gospel around Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. That was the furthest thing from what they thought they were doing. What they were convinced they were doing as they proclaimed the gospel is pronouncing the culmination of Judaism, what it all had been leading to. This was Judaism properly understood. Jesus was the hope of Israel. Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. So we'll put it this way. If the Apostle Paul was here today and we handed him a Census Bureau form and it said, hey, choose your religion. Are you Christian or Jewish? He would look at you like you're crazy. He's like, what are you talking about? Christian or Jewish? I'm an Israelite, Paul would say. I'm Jewish through and through, but I'm a follower of Jesus because he is the hope of Israel who has finally arrived. And my job is to proclaim not only to my Jewish kinsmen, but to the whole world that in him, all of the prophets and law and covenants have finally been fulfilled. He's not advocating a new religion. He's saying this is the culmination of the story. Jesus, the preaching of the gospel for these guys was not the first chapter of a new book. Rather, it was the final chapter of a very, very old book. And the beauty of the final chapter is it makes clear that everybody is invited into the story if they believe in Jesus through faith. And that's why when you read through a list like this, you can say, these privileges are mine as well in Jesus Christ. Final thought. It's the last one. Don't you want to be a part of this? And by this, I mean all those privileges in Christ. Yeah. My hope for this sermon was as we talked through these privileges that it would make you hungry to experience them in your life. And for some of you guys in here that might not know Jesus at all, that it would make you hungry to experience it for the first time. All these things that are talked about, the promises of God, his adoption of you as sons, the glory that awaits you. But even my favorite is one we haven't talked about so far. So far, it's the very last thing on that list. I don't think I put it up on the slide, but you've got it in the text as we read. Jesus says, to them belong the patriarchs, oh, excuse me, not Jesus, Paul says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, here's the good part, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Do you know why the text there says God is blessed forever, that Jesus is blessed forever? Because there will never be a day throughout all eternity where we don't discover some new thing in Christ that makes us want to erupt in praise and blessing. There is neither brim nor bottom to the beauty of Jesus that we will discover day after day, moment after moment throughout all eternity. Sorry, that was kind of a Samuel Rutherford quote there. I plagiarized him. 
Well, now I didn't because I attributed the quote. So I ask again, if you don't know Jesus now, don't you want to know him? Don't you want to have in your future a savior who you will never run out of things to discover that make you say, oh my goodness, it is even better than I ever could have imagined. You are blessed forever, O Christ. If that's the case, if you want him like that, then pray with me now. Father God, we believe that you sent Jesus, your only begotten son, as a savior for sinners. We believe that he's the savior because he was fully the son of God, able to take our sin upon him and to pay for it fully. God, we believe that without him, in our own power, we are lost, we are hopeless. But in him, believing in him in faith, Lord, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are made new. Lord, we give ourselves to this Jesus. We say, I'll follow you wherever you lead. I want you to take my life and have it to be the chief treasure of everything that I do. That's what we want. Lord, we pray that through this faith, you would unite us to Christ in such a way that we'd always know that we are with him and that we'll never be separated from his love. Lord God, whether we're praying that prayer for the first time today or whether we're praying it for the millionth time, I pray that you would hear it, you would answer it, and you would let us know the sweet presence of Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.